eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, Jim Miller. He is a frequent guest of this podcast, best-selling author of books on CAA, ESPN, Saturday Night Live, and HBO. He's got a new chapter of his uh, Origins podcast out, so uh, that's from Cadence 13. Check that out. It's on HBO, stuff that was not in his book. And we discuss all the big money contracts that have floated down for ESPN. Joe Buck, Troy Aikman, Adam Schefter, Adrian Wojnarowski, Adrian Wojnarowski what that means uh, what it means for others, how much the talent office has changed or not changed during the uh, the Jimmy Pitaro era, and uh, an ESPN employees and their relationship with the Florida legislation coin, don't say gay bill and what that means. Interesting stuff with Jim Miller. He's followed by another interesting guest, Grant Wall, uh, who uh, has who writes at grantwall.com, works for CBS Sports and Meadowlark Media, one of the prominent soccer journalists in the United States, my former longtime colleague at Sports Illustrated. Uh, we get into the World Cup, what Grant thinks in terms of the quality of this World Cup, how that might impact viewership, the interest in group stage matches, how much interest there'll be in the United States team. We get a little bit into if Ukraine makes the World Cup, what that would mean for the World Cup. would be a massive story well beyond sports. And then we end with um, Grant recently went to Qatar. Uh, interviewed migrant workers, and I think both of us are in agreement that uh, we think Fox Sports isn't going to go anywhere near this. Uh, they're not going to be critical of the host country and what that means when uh, when one is not critical of the host country on these broadcasts. So James Andrew Miller to start, Grant Wall to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. Jim Miller, obviously, has been a uh, frequent guest on this podcast as well as the podcast that I have for Sports Illustrated. I've introed him many times, but I will intro him again because his resume deserves it. He's the best-selling author of books on CAA, ESPN, Saturday Night Live, latest one on HBO. He's also hosting for this podcast company a new chapter of Origins. Uh, the sort of broad view here is HBO present, past, and future, but there are multiple episodes 
that are based on Jim's book. You can binge podcast this right now. Just head to the Origins page with James Andrew Miller for Apple Podcasts. So you have uh, um, there's an episode uh, titled Chief, A Tale of Three Women, On Location, Table for One, Life at the Top. And again, it's all sorts of stuff with HBO, like if you love The Wire or Treme, Sopranos. Um, it's just more things from his uh, reporting. Not from the book. Yeah, report. Yeah, more additional things that from his book Tinderbox that um, that maybe he didn't get into the book and now he puts into podcast form. And I'm pleased to be joined by Jim Miller back on the Sports Media Podcast. Jim, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's fine, Jim. You love to produce, and you're welcome to produce this podcast anytime you want. <laughs> far more successful than myself. All right, here we go. Let's um, let's get into some ESPN stuff, because when, when I have you on, that's what people love, uh, particularly ESPN PR department. They love your appearances, Jim, more than, than any other guest I have. They're, 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 yeah, they're starting to write down stuff already. So you have seen from your perch deals for Joe Buck, Troy Aikman, re, uh, re, re, re-ups for Adam Schefter and, and Adrian Wojnarowski. That's just, I'm naming just four people within the ESPN talent structure. Obviously, there have been more people who have, uh, who have re-signed and not signed. And uh, Sam Ponders won credit again to the excellent work of Andrew Marshan in the New York Post, who's, who's pretty much had all these transactions uh, first. So, Jim, for, from your perspective, um, I look at this and I say, wow, like— this has blown up the ESPN talent structure like it's obliterated it. Um, you know, Aikman, 18 million. Uh, Buck, 15 million. Schefter and Wojcik, clearly uh, a little below Stephen A. Smith, but probably in the 9, 10 million range, you know, whenever you sort of include total compensation. I want to just sort of get you broadly. Like, what's this mean? What does this mean to you? Um, it's not everybody, but man, those who have cut deals in the last. Uh, Three or four months, they have broken the bank when it comes to ESPN. Well, let's um, let's deconstruct it a little bit because I think in the case of Troy and Joe, you you have to understand when you make these deals with the NFL, um, you know we always report the package like the previous deal before this one was, you know, fifteen point three billion dollars over eight years, and it's the broadcast rights, right? And there's some digital rights attendant to whatever. But when you're in business with the NFL. That, that's that's not the final price tag because if the NFL isn't happy with your coverage, then you're going to have to spend more money to make sure it's happy with your coverage because the biggest leverage that the NFL has over ESPN, NBC, Fox, and now Amazon is that, you know, particularly with the abundance of players, schedule matters. And for years, ESPN was disappointed about their their schedule, um, and they started to do a little bit better. But as you and I have discussed many times, one of the things that was highest, probably the thing that was highest on Jimmy Pitar's list when he came on board as chairman of ESPN, was repairing things with ESP with the NFL, and that in order to depoliticize things and also to secure a better schedule and also most importantly to secure the renewal. He secured the renewal. He got a couple of Super Bowls. He got um, you know, a very nice package. And there was the last thing on the list was the fact that there were people at 
the Park Avenue offices of the NFL that did not feel like the Monday night booth was up to par with other companies and what they wanted Monday night to be. And at that point, you're, I, I think you're, you're kind of at the mercy of the NFL. I mean, that's not to say that Jimmy and the whole team uh, didn't do, uh, you know, their best shot at what they tried to do with the booth for several years. Um, but it wasn't enough. And so all of a sudden they found themselves in this, you know, wild, wild west of, uh, of contracts. And it, it has exploded. I mean, look, Tony Romo was the first one to take it to these new crazy heights. I mean, John Madden, obviously before him, but in, in our era right now, the era we're talking about, Tony Romo would unbelievable money. And so there was basically no choice. It was a little tricky because just like ESPN, had to do, ABC had to do some things to get um, Al Michaels years ago. Uh, Joe Buck wasn't going to be let out of his contract for nothing a year early, but you know, they, they worked it out. And, um, and I think that as a result, you have two very well-paid and very happy, uh, you know, members of the booth there in, in Joe and Troy. All right, so we got Joe and Troy part. The Schefter-Wojanowski part is, to me, like sort of a pretty clear line here in that they've made a, ESPN has made a decision that they they really want to, for lack of a better phraseology, they want to own the ticker. They, they've made a decision that a lot of their editorial ecosystem starts with some very well-known high-profile newsbreakers like Wojnarowski, Schefter, Jeff Passan, et cetera, breaking significant news in whatever, how you ever determine significant news. And then that can all float down, Jim, to all the different shoulder programming, to digital, to dot-com. And so the question is, of course, like what is the value then of having a top newsbreaker in the business? And very clearly for both these two, like the value is significant. We're talking multiple, multiple millions. They would have had interest and did have interest, obviously, with other outlets, including there's some certainly a lot of gambling money out there to be had if one of those two wanted to go in that direction. And so ESPN makes a decision to re-sign them. What's less interesting to me, Jim, about them re-signing their top insiders is what does it, if anything, mean for the salary structure at ESPN for other on-air talent now coming up for contracts? Well, I think, look, I think this decision is part of a larger decision that was made years ago, both in terms of on-air talent and also remember, it wasn't that long ago that we had some layoffs at ESPN and you, and we lost some great reporters, not we, but I mean, we as an audience lost some great reporters from the ESPN uh, camp. And that was really, that was really hard to watch. And this follow, this was following, you know, the breakdown of, Remember, they were going to do hyperlocal ESPN Chicago, ESPN, ESPN. Well, that went away. And a lot of what we might call mid-level, just in terms of salary, but not necessarily in terms of capabilities or prowess, um, a lot of those people got laid off or didn't get their contracts renewed. So I think what you're seeing is a continued, and this happened with the Stephen A. Smith deal. Um I think that they want to go big with fewer. You know, you have a pile of money and sometimes that pile gets bigger, but just think if you're, you're looking at a pile of money and there's lots of different ways to divide it up. And I think that one of the things that they've decided to do is 
go deep with these people that you know own their sectors, who have unbelievable followings, who have who have the ability and often do generate news. So it stays within the you know the ESPN world, and and so you know I mean I think it's fairly consistent. I wasn't I really didn't see either of those guys leaving. Um, also, even in part because both of those guys, I think they. I mean, obviously they like their money, but I think both of them like what they do. You have to like what they do because it's exhausting and never ends. And to go, yeah. one of, they like they like the platform too, don't you think? They like the fact they that like they're the at the biggest place. And they could have. I'm sure they could have gotten more money with one of the gambling entities. But you know, that's that's just not what they. they that's not just what they're about is money. And I think that they like the colleagues. They like the shoulder programming. They like the support that they get from management. And, um, you know, it served as a, you know, really strong platform for both of their careers. One of the things um, for the John Skipper era, and you are obviously knee deep in that, was John Skipper would take it upon himself many times, Jimmy, to get involved in uh, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy, not Jimmy Pataro, Jim Miller. John Skipper would get would take it upon himself many times to get personally involved in contract negotiations and not necessarily like for the highest paid employee at ESPN, but, um, but just on air personalities. And, you know, again, you're, you're sort of more vested in the business world than I am, but like that, there's always a danger when the president of a company starts sort of doing his own or her own negotiations when you have a talent office from everything I understand, you know, that necessarily has not happened as much with Jimmy Pitaro, but here's my, butt. but Jimmy Pitaro was absolutely involved with the Aikman deal with the Buck deal, I, I'd be stunned if he wasn't involved with the Wojnarowski deal and the Schefter deal, given the dollar figures. So that's sort of a, my preamble to get to you is, do you have any sense of how much the talent office has changed with Norby Williamson overseeing it? And does the president, in this case, Jimmy's position, does he still pop in when it's a real high profile person or... Is there more separation under the Pataro administration than Skipper? Because Skipper was very famous for, you know, if you had access to Skipper, Jim, you probably can get a great deal because then Skipper would contact his talent office and be like, hey, this is somebody we got to have kind of thing. Well, look, I, first of all, in all these cases, particularly with the booth, I mean, Jimmy, no offense against anyone else at ESPN, but Jimmy was doing these deals. These are huge deals that not only require a large expenditure of money, but they're, you know, as we've often said, like a de facto brand of the network. That's, that's the Monday night football booth. I mean, it doesn't get, you know, bigger than that. And uh, there isn't anybody that was more involved than Jimmy in this. Um, and that's just the, that's just the fact when you use the phrase talent office, you know, that mean that has meant different things over the past couple of years. Cause it used to be, you know, like Lori Orlando and Jerry Madelon. Sorry for the inside baseball here, but no, 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 right. They yeah. ran. They, you know, they they were part of the quote unquote talent office, but that talent wasn't. I mean, yes, they were making. They were the point for certain deals, but they weren't doing them on their own. And I think Skipper got involved in certain deals when he was trying to prevent somebody from going someplace else or there was a stalemate or whatever but look he didn't want to be you know he didn't want to be spending his time making those deals with you know nick Khan and all the other agents that during that era um 
he was trying to, you know, keep the people that his talent office and production people wanted and that he wanted. But um, it, it wasn't, I mean, sometimes he would micromanage. But my only point is uh, just because Jimmy Pataro isn't giving interviews talking about his conversation with Troy or yeah. one, he, he, you're saying he's, he, know, and I agree with you. He knows what's going on when it comes to this kind of money. Like he has to, like, you, no, no, this is, I'm job. sure you, you probably have better insight than me. Like some of this has to be approved by a right. board, right? You can't do that. A Aikman deal without Disney. It's not even, I'm sorry to make a fun. It's not even like he knows what's going on. He's driving the car. And yeah, by the right, way, right. and oftentimes Nobody else is in the car. That's no offense to any other employee at ESPN, but that's just this is right. the deep end of the pool, and this is a huge expenditure of money. And no, he's he was definitely, definitely intimately involved in them. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, which I mean, I had Aikman. I had Aikman. I talked to Aikman for a piece not too long ago, and he, you know, sort of he he talked about his his interactions with Pitaro. Um, he mentioned them getting together at the Super Bowl. I think I'm trying to remember if he he might have he might have. I don't know if he told me where he talked to Pataro, but yes, he. I think he gave me that time frame. Well, let's, let's just say that they may have had a conversation at or around the Super Bowl and that um, Troy may have had a good feeling about Jimmy and ESPN after that conversation. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. That Those are right. those things, those moments can be incredibly significant, especially when, you yeah. know, you're not necessarily locked into the place where you're at right now. Yeah. Which we, which we saw clearly. Do you, do you think any, so I, let's sort of wrap this part up and then we'll get to some other stuff. Do, does do, do these high salary people, these significant expenditures by ESPN, does this have any impact on those who are going to be at salary figures below this group? Meaning I'm not, I won't use a particular person, but Let's say I'm um, NFL analyst X on one of these shoulder programs. My contract is coming up. Does the fact that Schefter, Wojnarowski, Buck, and Aikman obliterated the salary structure, does that impact me at all or no? Because I am not, as you mentioned, uh, Jim, in this sort of stratosphere where, where we'll break the bank for this kind of thing. Look, I think that um, I think ESPN has been planning for this and other things for a while. They've been doing this to uh, correspondents and uh reporters for several years i mean they did it around the stephen a deal you're not going to pay stephen a 12 million bucks and still be able to pay everybody else exactly you know i mean there are certain there are certain decisions that they've been making for several years about who they want to step up with and who they don't and there have been sports center rankers who you know quite frankly if they're making i'm just let's just say a million dollars just for, and you know, they get renewed and they, if you want to stay, that's great. The new number is 600,000 and they go, well, right. Yeah. So that Kenny, Kenny may got asked to take a, yeah. And so pay. that, that's what I'm saying. So this is not something that's going to start now. This is something that started beforehand. These are huge exceptions to the financial model they have in place in part to pay for it. But, you know, I think that they've been um, thinking about moves like this there's a just there's a wide disparity of uh you know salaries now at ESPN probably more so than ever before but remember something else uh for a while there Bill Simmons was the most expensive uh highest paid piece of his ta talent and then John Gruden passed him and when John Gruden was in the Monday Night Football 
booth, I guess he was making 6.2, maybe, I forget. But, you know, that's like small change right now compared to what these guys are making. But my only point is the booth has always been something that where they could go to a higher, um, you know, higher level. And of course, Stephen A is about tonnage because he so many hours a week. Let me ask you. I, 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 let me ask you a little bit of a change of question, and then I'll get to. Um, I want to get your sort of thoughts on uh, on Bob Chapek and Disney's response to the Florida legislation. And the ESPN people walking out um, under Pataro, uh, who I think you know pretty well. Um, your 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 sort of relationship or knowing him goes back many many years. Um, do you think? I'm going to, I don't, they're not going to hire this guy, but I just want to use him as an example. If Urban Meyer expressed interest to ESPN to come back in some kind of college football role, the logical statement is if this, by the way, if this does happen, it obviously, it will be with, it would be with Fox Sports before ESPN, just given that Urban Meyer previously worked there. But I'm just using him, Jim, as sort of my sort of point of view here, Uh, not point of view, but sort of the, the point here. How do you think Jimmy Pataro would feel about bringing on, for lack of a better word, sort of controversial people onto his airwaves or people who have, in a non-broadcast form, maybe done some things that the public is not particularly happy with? Like, I have, a, I had a much better feel for how John Skipper would react to something like that than I do with Jimmy Pataro. Do you have a sense, and if we use the Urban Meyer example, how Pataro would see that? Like, would he care of Urban's issues away from broadcasting? Well, first of all, I think we have to account for the fact that the context has changed. Even Skipper would have been acting differently if he was still in the job now. In these three or four, I think things have, you know, expanded. Our antennas have gotten higher. The sensitivity levels are higher. So I'm not sure we can, can you know, it's not a level playing ground. I think second of all, uh, Jimmy, and I would say this about John, obviously, as well, which is I think they're very sensitive to people's reputation who they bring in, because when you're at one point, ESPN had close to a thousand people that they put on the air. They were paying a thousand people. You know, it's hard to monitor all those people. But at the same time, they they made sure that those people and, and you can look through the list of suspensions and firings and everything else when people, you know, Five, six, seven years ago, I mean, there were some wackadoodles that uh, were on air and um, behaved badly, and they were voted off the island. And so I think that uh, reputation and comportment have always been, I don't think it's anything new. I think they've always been really in, important to um, to both Skipper and Jimmy. And, uh, and the other thing is that they don't... There's not, I mean, look, obviously when you're talking about the booth and there's two chairs and it's, you know, it's Troy and Joe, but for a lot of these other analyst jobs and, you know, shoulder programming and, you know, five people sitting around a booth, there's just a lot of people. There's, you know, no one, no one is so, so important where you can't say, you know what, it's not working. You're you're also dealing many times with, and you know this, like you're dealing with under half a million viewers. You know what I mean? Like the number's not going to change so dramatically if you take analyst X away and put analyst Y in. Well, you know, look, you could argue that about the booth too. Uh, You know, that's a whole, that's a whole other rabbit. The game is the game, but I thought you explained it very, very well, particularly the NFL's interest in ESPN having a good booth. That's for real. And that does impact scheduling. But like, you know, like, I, I mean, I'm, again, this would be sort of my take if, if you're from a Pataro level. 
Like, I don't think there's not a big difference between like if you bring in uh, Jay Williams or Scotty Pippen for some NBA countdown kind of program. Like, it, neither of those guys are moving the needle one way or the other. Um, so then to me, like, again, you know, and, and I think you're right about sort of increased sensitivity. I would not, one, I wouldn't bring in someone like Irma Meyer anyway. I think the guy's a total jerk. But like, I would think just in terms of, headache alone it's not like this guy's going to game change anything so why deal with the headache when you already might have somebody on your staff is going to get the same viewership number and you can pay them less. yeah i mean i look i can't the short answer is i can't imagine it happening you've seen and watched um bob chapek uh follow bob Iger, and bob chapek at the moment and talked about this with alex sherman uh, who wrote a really fascinating piece about their uh their relationship uh falling in the um, Chapek taking over for Iger, uh, CNBC's Alex Sherman. And where this impacts uh, ESPN, Jim, is, um, you know, there's a lot of thought as to what Chapek is going to do with ESPN amid the Disney universe. And then secondly, Chapek obviously is in significant water with his employees, not being particularly happy about how Disney initially reacted to the Florida, Florida legislation, um, which has been coined the don't say gay bill. Um, opponents of the law say um, it uh, it marginalizes LGBTQ people, their presence in society. Uh, you know, proponents would say um, that they're happy with uh, the DeSantis legislation. But ESPN employees sort of publicly, Jim, they, they walked into this and said that, um, you know, either walking out or making reference to this on air that this was not acceptable to them, um, which I thought one was interesting. I think bravo to them for sort of speaking their truths. But this goes back to, Jim, something we used to talk about, it felt like, for years on this podcast, and ESPN navigating these political waters when, 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 when politics and sports or social justice and sports intersect as they always do. So from your perspective, I wonder just how you saw, how you see Chapek, how you see Chapek handling this and then sort of ESPN, the ESPN component of it. I mean, look, I think on the on the most, well, not the most important, but let's just say on the biggest level, I think that the real problem isn't about what's going on in March or April this of this year. The real problem is going to be what starts happening to Disney after the election in November because Fox News and um, a lot of media outlets that have shared orthodoxies have been going crazy with this. And um, I don't mean crazy. I mean, they've been doubling down on this. The number of times that they mentioned Disney, uh, you know, in newscasts and in primetime, I think, you know. It's crazy. I mean, this past, the last seven days, do the numbers of how many times they've been mentioned versus like the previous 365, it is, you are correct. It's uh, you know, and, you know, maybe even on some of these outlets, I think it's probably more than Ukraine. And my only point is that right now the house is under democratic control. Uh, but wait till the Republicans get control uh, as they're expected to do in November. Because I think that what you're going to see is the combination of the Republicans in Congress and also DeSantis in Florida running the state, um, you're talking about significant elements of the Disney financial architecture that 
may be up for grabs and may be jeopardized and may be attacked like in a way that we've never seen since literally Walt Disney moved down there. And I think that that is, if I were at Disney, um, of course, you're still struggling. I don't believe it when they say we're never going to spin ESPN off. I think that they're struggling with the identity of it. They, I actually think they blew it because they should have bought Time Warner and then spun off TNT, TBS, and ESPN. But that's just me. Um, they have to they have to figure out how to do, how to do this. So I don't think there are any absolutes. But more importantly, um, I am very curious to see just how far a Republican controlled house can make life miserable for Disney. And that's going to be significant. Yeah. And while worth noting, Jim Miller, a uh, um, long time ago, in addition to writing a book on the inner workings of the Senate worked for Moynihan. Who did you work for? No, I did work for Moynihan at one point. Moynihan. I worked okay, for Howard right. Baker too. Howard Baker. I'm sorry. So this is a guy actually who was, uh, who was inside our, uh, um, that institution. But the other part of your, to, but the other uh, part of your question is this: that you know, we learned, we we saw an experiment. You know, I did a, uh, I did an, I don't mean this as a plug, but I did an origins ep- episode on the history of social media at ESPN, and it's kind of almost comical to go back to it because, you know, they were saying to people, you couldn't express personal views on Twitter, and you couldn't talk about your own. <laughs> proclivities on social media. And I think that what we saw with the ESPN employees and other Disney employees protesting is the natural extension of what we've, you know, come to realize over the last three years, which is that you just can't put those walls up. You can't deprive employees from, you know, talking and, and expressing their own views about things, especially when it comes to social justice or race or whatever. And so, um, if there was any semblance of like a, a particular wall being left after the last couple of years, uh, that was that that part was further knocked down over, over the past week or two. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. And I think for all, of all orthodoxies, they should be allowed to offer opinion. But uh, this is once again, this is the never ending thing for ESPN. And and it will be an issue. Uh, it will be an issue again. I want to uh, one last thing here. One last thing, and then I'll let you plug Origins as much as you want. Is it a good time right now to be a talent agent for sports media talent? Open-ended question. I, you know, the obvious answer is it depends for who. I mean, look, if you're, if you're, you know, uh, if you're Kevin Burkhardt's agent right now, that's a that's a nice place to be. You know, if you were Troy, <laughs> if right. you're you know, Joe jo- Josh, shout out to Josh Pyatt, Chris, Chris Collinsworth. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, uh, these are these are all. These are all very good clients to have now, and there's a there's a yeah. ton of others. Schefter, Schefter, I'd say be, good to be uh, good to be Matt Kramer at CAA as Schefter and Wojnarowski. So you're right, exactly. I guess it's it's who you got. Yeah, I mean, but but I will say that it's a lot tougher to have other kinds of clients now than it's ever been. Um, well, why do you say that though? Like you, I mean, to me, I mean, again. You wrote the book on CAA, so I tip my hat to you on this. But given all the outlets and like gambling money and 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 audio companies trying to create podcast networks, I'm not saying every, you can get a Stephen A. Smith deal for everybody, but it seems like there's a lot of six figure deals out there, at least for prominent on air broadcast talent. No, there are, but I can't tell you how. The, I, I, you know, it's hard to do the percentages because there's so many people involved, but. 
there, there is a, there are a lot of people at ESPN right now who are working for less money than they were on their previous contracts. And probably for some of them, I could, one, two, three, like you could, people come like for the first time in their careers, they've always been, you know, each contract, they could get, you know, a significant increase or at least, you know, some kind of increase during maybe the most difficult times they were flatlined or something, but we're talking about people that go from like one, three to eight fifty, uh, one, one to six seventy five. Right. Uh, what's another one? One, 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 five, oh, to six fifty or six seventy five. forget. But like those, that's, you know, and those agents. It's significant. We're, we're, I mean, I, 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 I didn't mean to jump you. I was just going to say, we we should point out these are all first world problems. I mean, no, no, these, are, I'm, these I'm are trying to get back to your central percentile. Yeah, but you're totally correct. Like that is a that is a that regardless, that is still a dramatic a dramatic ask for a salary cut. But that know, means that the issue. agent is literally calling the client and saying, "Look, we we tried, we tried to do everything we could. You're you're going to have to take a haircut, and it's going to be about forty percent." You know, you can either leave like Kenny Main did. You can stay like certain people did, and um, and that's it. Yep. You know, um, and, and a lot of people. It's been hard for a lot of people to swallow their pride. It's been hard for them financially. I mean, you know, I know it's a first world problem, but if you're used to making, you know, one one or one two or you know one five, you know, people or whatever, then um, you get, you know, you you. That's a tough time to be an agent. Um, Scott Van Pelt and, you know, others are going to be fine, but um, there's a lot of people that aren't. So I guess in that world, the key is to get, like you said, sort of to bring this to a circle, you want to get the premium people who are really going to get paid. Yeah. By the way, there are there anchors at ESPN and elsewhere who have lost their agents because the agents don't have the bandwidth. Now, if you're like, you know, if you're going to be like a $300,000 a year, you know, contract, they may just say, listen, there's nothing we really can do for you now. And, and, you know, and that's it. Um, that's been hard. There's been a migration away from, uh, you know, WME, CA, UTA and others for like some of these, you know, I, I don't want to say moderate because it's still a good salary, but, you know, some of those people have, have had to leave the yeah. agency and get either lawyers or agents someplace else. No, well, Jim Miller will read your contract. for How about that for a certain price? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. The origins thing. Why don't you sort of, uh, before we get out of here, um, <clears throat> and again, full disclosure, Cadence 13, obviously, is the podcast company I work for. They're doing Jim's podcast or have done Jim's podcast. So what can you get on this origins uh, sort of five-episode run that you just did? I mean, it's not stuff from the book. And most importantly, I just think one of the cool things, one of the reasons why I like doing a podcast um, is because you get to hear people's voice, you hear their rhythms, you um, can hear their laugh, but also more importantly, 
you know, in the case of, uh, I mean, look, I interviewed Casey Bloys and Jeff Bucus and Richard Plepler, uh, Sheila Nevins, uh, the great David Simon from uh, from The Wire, uh, a really interesting guy who was the showrunner of Insecure, Prentice Penny. These, these are, you know, I, I think I found them all thoughtful when I interviewed them for the book, and I wanted to do all new interviews with them for this podcast and uh, do it more thematically than as a history book. So, you know, like in, in episode two, if you're, if you watch HBO and you're curious, like who's making these decisions, who's running drama, who's running comedy, who's running late night. It turns out there's three really talented women. And I sat down, you know, talked with all three of them about the nature of their jobs and their relationships with talent and their relationship with their bosses. And, you know, I talked with, uh, Bucus and Plepner and uh, Plepler and one of the earlier CEOs about the future of streaming, the future of HBO. Is it going to still be around several years from now? So I tried to do things that are a little different than the book and at the same time, much more accessible in terms of, you know, um, time. So uh, there's Sheila Evans is by herself for episode four. And uh, for people who may, maybe don't know her or what it's like to, uh, to, to listen to Sheila. Um, that's a, that's a tour de force. Yeah. And your book is really fascinating, especially on a personal note for me as a time, long time timing employee, it was just really fascinating to see the sort of the origins of how HBO started and, and how these guys, um, um, I mean, really just sort of amazing how they sort of started this business. Uh, many of them, um, ultimately ended up having, um, significant, uh, significant impact on those of us at time Inc. Um, our lives, obviously Jerry Levin with the AOL merger. And, uh, you know, listen, I respect Jeff Bukes, business acumen. He had to do what he had to do, but he did F over a lot of us at time Inc because he basically cut us astray, but you know, I get it. That was the business move, but it's really fascinating. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of a fascinating, um, examination of, um, of one of the most impactful, uh, entertainment, uh, outlets of our time. Right, is there anything else I didn't, I, I need to no. mention before I let you go? What other podcasts are you doing this week? You're no, no, on. no, 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 no. You always no, have a busy no, I'm schedule. Working away. I'm writing. A, What's next? Yeah, what you, are you allowed to talk about? Working on a couple documentaries. I'm working on a scripted series. I'm working on, uh, you know, blah blah blah. But um, you know, uh, enjoying it all and feel gr- really grateful. Um, but thank you for having me. All right. You seem very downcast. You know, I feel like it's a happy thing. Like you're making working on different documentaries, but you don't want to give anything up, right? You're so close to the vest with this stuff. <laughs> You'd be a good agent. You would not. Don't, you don't give up. Anything. I, you know, I think it's uh, look. You know, a lot of what happens, you, you you can't control everything, and so sometimes you're working on something, and all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't happen, and you know, True. just it's you know better to just be, uh, you know, like the Zen master says, uh, we'll see. All right, you know, I, I never. We're taping this on Monday, the night of the national championship. Like, are you? I know you are a football course. fan. Do you watch college basketball? Of Will you watch of course, tonight? Yeah. All right, I didn't realize that. You have, you do have a lot of kids who have attended like uh, some schools with good basketball teams. Yeah, my so son just graduated recently from Wisconsin, and he was eight. I think they went to the Final Four. Or yeah, they were in the elite eight like they two did or three times. His so time. it was that yeah. was really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, he had a nice run. All right, Jim Miller, check out uh, all his. Uh, his books, uh, check the origins podcast out. And, um, you know, I assume he's sort of still, uh, on different social media outlets. So you can follow him there. Jim, as always, 
I appreciate it. You're you, you are uh, you're a great guest because you work very cheap for this podcast. So I appreciate. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. All right, as I said at the top, you know, I've worked with Grant Wall. I don't work with him now. I shouldn't current tense him, but I, I worked with Grant Wall for more than a decade. Um, his, uh, his stuff on soccer speaks for itself. He's currently writing the – Grant, you know, I don't want to screw this up. So, like, do I – I don't say football with Grant Wall Substack, right? Do I say grantwall.com? How exactly is the best way to promote this? Grantwall.com is what I've settled on just because that's the easiest one for people to remember. It gets you to the site. You can get all my writing there. Um, free seven-day trials, all that stuff. But it's it's been a lot of fun to just be out in the world doing what I love to do, which involves mainly being on the road reporting, whether it's U.S. men's World Cup qualifiers. I, I just went to Qatar for a big magazine-style story and uh, lots of other stuff to come. All right. Also, as we're promoting Grant here, he's doing stuff for CBS Sports, also Meadowlark Media. And again, and this is an important thing, uh, and I give Grant a lot of credit for this. There's a lot of substacks out there, obviously, that offer opinions. My God, so many people are making a shitload of money culture warring it up. But Grant actually goes out and reports. Like he he is he is using at least in some form whatever he's getting paid by the substacks of the world, et cetera, or or, or readers and traveling to CONCACAF nations to do uh, firsthand reporting, you know, whether it's Costa Rica, or Panama, or whatever. So I got a lot of respect for that. Uh, Grant, I should formally welcome you to the Sports Media Podcast. Congratulations on, uh, you know, focusing on the second best team in the region. I, of course, <laughs> live in the country with the first best team in the region. And so, uh, so Canada has become quite a soccer country. We'll get into that in a second. All right, here's where I want to start, Grant, because I want to talk about the um, – the World Cup. Let, let's just take it sort of like big picture here. Um, I look at the teams that are in the World Cup, and I, I think it's a really good World Cup. Like, I think it's a quality World Cup. I know Italy's not in, um, but, uh, like, it feels top to bottom. Like, it's going to be a pretty good competition. How do you look at it like big picture? Loaded is the term I would use for this World Cup because, really, you mentioned it. Italy's the only really big team that didn't qualify, and the fact that they didn't is just absolutely wild because they're the current European champion, obviously, but they didn't earn it on the field and they lost at home to North Macedonia of all teams in a playoff. Uh, they, it, the Italians already should have qualified before that against Switzerland in the group and they missed a late penalty that would have put them in Qatar. So yes, 
Italy outshot North Macedonia 32 to four, but one of those four shots for the Macedonians went in, Italy didn't score and they're out. So that's the only real big team missing in my opinion from the world cup. And, um, you know, now that we've seen the draw, now that we've seen the matchups, it, it's kind of cool too to you know have that in your head and see it on paper. And you know, we'll talk more about it. But like USA England is just a phenomenal draw to get people interested here in the U.S. who maybe don't watch soccer every day. Day after Thanksgiving, it's going to be pretty great. So let's we'll get into that now. Um, I went back and looked for our segment here, like what the World Cup did in 2018. So the entire tournament averaged on Fox and FS1 2.98 uh, million viewers. That was down significantly from 2014, 35%, and down 10% from 2010. Here is the, there are significant caveats here that you have to mention. That World Cup was the first since 86 that didn't have the United States. It aired in windows that were um, not as good as um, previous years because of the time difference with um, Russia, including it was the first World Cup final, maybe ever or no, since 2002, I'm sorry, to start before noon Eastern. So Qatar will have better windows, Grant. You have the U.S. in it. My initial sense is that, um, you know, there's going to be significant interest in this World Cup. I, I think, um, I, I, you know, the numbers, I don't, I can't tell you exactly what the numbers will be, but the, the viewership numbers are going to be really, really impressive for this. How do you see it, at least in terms of it, based on my world, sort of viewership interest metrics, that kind of stuff? I mean, what you just said made sense to me. I guess the big question that everyone has is with this World Cup taking place in November, December, is that going to have a significant impact on viewership in the United States? Because one of the reasons I think the World Cup has become a truly big time event in the United States on television is it has taken place in June and July, which, you know, is a time when not much else is going on in the sports calendar, you know, maybe baseball, uh, kids are out of school in the summer and, and there's a real opportunity to, to watch all the games and, and really dig into the storylines and the development of that tournament as it goes on over a month. And so What's it going to be like in November, December when kids are in school and when there's the NFL going on and college football going on and other sports? And I know there's not going to be a lot of direct conflicts time-wise between the NFL and World Cup games, but that's still time that people are devoting to watching sports and people only have so much time to watch sports. So I'm curious to yeah, see how college, all college, that impacts things. College football, too. I mean, that's we haven't really gotten into that. And I, I haven't looked at the college football schedule uh, in relation to the World Cup schedule, but that could be a factor. That's a Saturday, you know, that's that's a Saturday schedule when it comes to um, when it comes to college football. And so I'll be interested to see some of the games if they uh, match up, particularly if there's a, you know, a major college football game during that window. So, Grant, one of the things that's interesting to me, again, when I went back and looked at uh some of the numbers. The most watched non-U.S. group stage match last time was Germany-Sweden. It drew nearly five and a half million viewers on Fox on a Saturday. Again, you mentioned time of the year, obviously beneficial in June. But that, I think, to me, is what I'm most interested in when it comes to the viewership of this World Cup. 
I know the U.S. is going to do great numbers. It's not going to make, it's not going to do NFL numbers. I get that, but but there's going to be you know we're looking most likely at double digit um, in the millions for World Cup group stage matches, and the England match will be an absurd number. I don't even want to guess, but you know it could be looking at plus fifteen million on that one. So that's the what's interesting to me, Grant, is that that to me this will tell me where global soccer is in the United States is how these group stage matches that don't involve the U.S. do. You agree with that sort of premise? No, it makes total sense to me because the U.S. may play in just three games in this tournament. We'll see if they play more, but there's a lot of other games, like 60-some more games, and that's where we'll get a better reading on where the sport is, where the World Cup is uh, in the U.S. And... You know, we only get one crack at this every four years on the men's side. We also do on the women's side once every four years. And so I'm, as someone who devotes all my time to covering soccer, very interested in seeing if there is any bump this time around. All right, we'll get to something in relation to soccer. This is sort of more of your world here. Um, What would be the importance of the U.S. getting out of the knockout stage? I'm not going to say something insane. I'm like, you know, what would be the importance of the U.S. winning the World Cup? Like, duh, uh, you know. Anyone can answer that. But like realistically, if the U.S. can somehow finish second in this group, they get to the knockout stage, obviously they'll face a good team. How significant is that versus if they just go home after three games? You know, I think it's important because that's the goal to start for the U.S. men's national team is get out of the group. And frankly, they should get out of the group because... In the, in the seedings, the U.S. was in pot two, so they were the second seed according to the FIFA rankings in the group. So the seeds expect the U.S. to get out of the group. The top seed in the U.S.'s group is England, and then there's Iran, which is a very interesting team to face, obviously. Yeah, and then you're still waiting for the fourth team in the group that the U.S. will open against. It's either going to be Wales, Ukraine, another interesting storyline, or Scotland. Yeah. And we'll find that out in June. So there's a little bit left to be determined here. But remember, the U.S. drew England in their World Cup group in 2010, ended up tying them 1-1, and the U.S. actually won that group. And so I think 12 years later, there's nothing wrong with thinking that the U.S. should be able to advance from this group and potentially even win the group. And I realize it's a completely different U.S. team. They're very young. But they have a lot of players playing in the UEFA Champions League more than ever before. And I think they've grown a lot during this CONCACAF qualification process. They've been through a lot of hard moments now. And I think they've got a really high ceiling, to be honest. And so I do think they can get out of the group. And if you do, let's say you win the group, then you're facing a second place finisher from another group in the round of 16. You never know what might be able to happen. I can remember covering the U.S., at the 2002 World Cup, and that team went all the way to the quarterfinals. And I don't think people were as high on that team going into the tournament as they will be about this U.S. team. Yeah, I can't see them be. I can't see them winning the group with England. I think England's a legit team. That said, I, I do agree with you. Like the, and this is where I want to get to. Iran is a very interesting team. I do not think they will be an easy out for either England or the U.S. But let's make the presumption that the U.S. wins that game and England wins that game against. Uh, against Iran. We don't know who the final team is going to be, but here I actually was talking to, I was talking about this grant with some non-soccer people, which, cause, cause it was interesting to them. And 
if Ukraine makes the World Cup, it would. I mean, I get. I get we're in Qatar, so I, I should. I, I don't know Qatar enough to know, but my initial sense would be they become the second home team of the World Cup. The crowd will be going nuts for them. It will be a significant test for whoever plays them, and I just think the rest of the world will be rooting for them outside of their own home country. Um, am I making too much of that? I know. I realize they might not make it, and they're not favored. But man, if they make it, I, I just feel like that story is not a sports story anymore. That's one of the stories that like becomes the lead story on newscasts, front page, that kind of stuff. I think you're totally correct. And if Ukraine makes it to the World Cup, they will be everyone's second favorite team because of the storyline there. And so I think the U.S. has to be prepared for that if it happens. And what we've seen so far with Ukrainian players at their clubs in the last few weeks is that the outpouring of support from fans around the world, uh, it's absolutely incredible. And there's some just amazing stories that we've already seen with Ukrainian players scoring big goals and just this outpouring of emotion in the stadium. So I fully expect that would be the case if the Ukrainian national team, which has very good players, by the way, ends up making the World Cup, and then ends up playing the U.S. in their first game on the first day of the tournament. Yeah, and again, you know, let me be clear. Like, there's a lot of presumption in my question to Grant. We don't know what we don't know what the state of Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be. We don't know where the, you know, where the country will be in terms of Ukraine, in terms of sort of just where they are. Uh, you know, in in hopefully what begins a rebuild. You know, I don't even want to presume if war is uh, continuing. Um, you know, I think any any person with any kind of conscience hopes not. But the reality is, like, there's a madman who attacked that country. And so we don't know. That said, in a sporting context, I'm with you, Grant. I, just, I think it would be one of the most amazing stories at the World Cup. I think the the entire world would be rooting for them. And on a on a sort of a play, on a field level, that creates some pressure for their opponents. A couple more things here about the World Cup, um, the World Cup draw. Uh, is there, in your opinion, is there, because it doesn't, you know, I think it strikes me that like France is a, would be sort of the favorite to win, but I don't like feel like France or, um, or England or Belgium or whatever are like, the prohibitive favorites, the way maybe like the Brazilians were once upon a time, the prohibitive favorites to win. And I think I feel like you can make a case for like six, seven teams to win the World Cup, this particular World Cup. You buy that or do you put France ahead of uh, ahead of everybody in there like a definitive favorite for you? No, I, I think there are several teams that are capable of winning this World Cup. And there's not one team that far and away stands out above the rest. I think the gambling favorite right now is Brazil. Oh wow! I but I have I find that a little dubious because Brazil hasn't won a World Cup since 2002. A non-European team hasn't won a men's World Cup since 2002, and it feels like the gap between the top European teams and the rest of the world has actually grown in recent years. And so, um, yeah, it's hard for me to buy Brazil being the favorite. They've been the best team in South American qualifying, but they actually did not win the Copa America last year. They lost to Argentina in the final, and Argentina, with Messi's last shot, 
has been getting much more out of its team the last couple of years than they were before that. And so uh, I think they should be included in that group. But then you look at the European teams, France is the defending champion, but we have this trend now that in four of the last five men's world cups, the defending champion has gone out in the group stage, which is crazy when you think about it. And so I've always wanted to kind of look into this more deeply, which I think I may do for my writing site, is why that's the case. But this France team on paper should be definitely a candidate to win. Kylian Mbappe is four years older. They already won four years ago. It's, you know, France is just loaded with talent. So on paper, my feeling is they should be the favorite, but... Then again, we saw them go out in the Euros last year on penalties to Switzerland. So um, you look around young teams that I think are, are still on the way up, include England, include Spain. Uh, and then you've got some older teams, too, which happen to be in the same group. So Belgium and Croatia both got to the semifinals last time. They're in the same group with Canada, by the way. I know. And they're kind of on the old-ish end now. And so my question will be, are they too old? Because I do think the World Cup is kind of a young man's tournament, which is why I'm excited about Canada, even in that group, because they're a young team. Yeah, I mean, the Canadians, uh, you know, you have to hope that Morocco's a win. And then for the Canadians, it, it all comes down to, um, to the Croatia game. And, you know, and, and you would have a bet. Actually, you know, I have a lot of Canadian listeners, obviously, to this one. Um, let's make the presumption they lose to Belgium. Uh, even though I'm, not doing, I'm not doing that, by the way, but go ahead. You don't want to do that. Okay. Well, if they draw with Belgium, they're getting to the knockout stage. I feel, I feel confident about that. But I still grant at a certain level, I mean, we are still talking about as great as the Canadians have been. That's, that's a massive ask to beat the number two team in the world, even if it's an aging number two team in the world. It is. It is. And, and I don't want to make it sound like Belgium and Croatia like aren't good. They are very, very good. And yet... Plus, my man Roberto Martinez is coaching that team, <laughs> right? I mean, I love Herdman, but I, Roberto Martinez is a great coach. He will have them ready. That's all true. And yet, I feel like... It's just a really interesting draw for Canada, being as young as they are, as talented as they are, and then having these very talented but old-ish teams in their group. And I, I would talk about Croatia even more so in those terms, maybe, than Belgium. Like, I, I, I feel like Croatia's time, like, I love Luka Modric and, uh, and all those guys. Um, on that team. But they, but, yeah, they really feel like, to me, they feel more older than Belgium. Am I right about that? Like a as bit. A, as like the, the you know, every, you always sort of call them the golden generation. I feel like Croatia's golden generation is is on the other side of the, of the fence. Yeah, and, and so do I think Canada can get something out of the Croatia game? Yeah, I do. I think it's even possible with Belgium, but don't sleep on Morocco. They're a really talented team. Uh, with some top players from the European clubs, Akraf Hakimi, if they can get Hakim Ziyech back into the national team from Chelsea, they could be very good. They've got a great striker and Nasiri from Sevilla. Like, they're good. It, that's a really good group. Hmm. Yeah, all right. Well, now I'm not happy because maybe now Morocco beats Canada and World Cup dreams are over. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, let me ask you a journalism kind of nerd question here. You're covering the, I assume you'll be in Qatar? Yes. It goes without saying. Okay, so now unlike the days when you would get credentialed by Sports Illustrated or credentialed by Fox or whatever, how does it work when you have GrantWall.com in terms of getting credentialed for this? I fully plan to be credentialed by FIFA for the World Cup in the same way that I have been for every previous World Cup I've covered. I think this will be my seventh men's World Cup. Um, The way credentialing works is FIFA does it through the national federations. So U.S. soccer will oversee ah. the credentialing process. And one way, you know, U.S. soccer knows that I'm doing the same type of respected work yeah. that I've always done. Well, you have done. a relationship and, with U.S. soccer for two decades. Right. And, and so I also went on site to all 14 U.S. men's World Cup right. qualifiers. And I think there were only three other journalists who did that. So you show in qualification how seriously you take things and by being on site and spending the money to be there, that will earn me the the credential. It's a little similar though with Substack. Like when Substack had a writer get a White House credential, that was a big deal for them. And so it, it'll be nice for, for Substack that they have a writer for them, an independent writer who's able to get a credential like that. But it, yeah, I fully expect to get one. Now, Grant, when will your column start using words like woke and like radical left? And like, when will that happen? Is that happening soon? Because isn't that a requirement for Substack at this point or no? I love that this is your impression of what Substack is, because when when I subscribe to Substack and I subscribe to other writers, it's it's mostly soccer writers. You know, a few other ones uh, in sports like Molly Knight and and Mark Stein. But um, I understand that a lot of the people who are loudest on Substack, who are independent and doing quite well financially, are uh, those types of people you're talking about. But like, right. I really, it's been fun for me to see if I can do a diff- do this a different way and, and to do the, the type of on-site journalism and reporting that I always did for Sports Illustrated on Substack, and so I, I do opinion pieces, but I'm not a, a screamer or a culture warrior. And Can so, you at least blame someone for taking your voice away, and how the tyranny <laughs> of somebody isn't allowing you to do podcasts like these. Can you just do that for me? Can you do one column on that? I can't say I'm being canceled if I'm on the Richard Deitch podcast. Can Correct. I? Correct. That's no, you cannot. All right. Anyway, we'll move on from this nonsense. All right. So, are you? So, the, or will you? The, you'll be there for the whole month. Then, are you going from from game one to 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 the final? Yeah, I'll be there in Qatar for the whole event. Um, and like I said, I was just there for a story uh, that I'm doing for my site. And so I have a pretty good idea of what it looks like on the ground now. And it's uh, it's going to be a really interesting World Cup. Okay, good segue, because I want to finish with this. Um, this is, this is this, you know, Grant and I know each other, so we can joke a little bit. I do want to be serious about this topic, though, Grant. Um, we saw NBC having to navigate uh, very tricky waters for them. Uh, when discussing uh, when discussing things outside of the Olympic competition in China, namely, obviously, China's human rights abuse, um, 
what they're what they've done with um, the Uyghur population and all the ills sort of that exist in China. You saw how NBC approached this, and I have to say they ended up doing more than I expected. Um, really in-depth, long discussions prior to the Olympics with China experts. Then in the opening ceremony, they did not avoid um, the political topics on this during the games. Um, they did, uh, again, go back to it in different ways. I get that you can complain that maybe um, they were too soft on certain areas or maybe they should have tried harder to interview Peng Shua, but I think if you thought NBC was going to avoid it, they didn't. I mean, you just have to be fair about it. Now we get to Fox Sports, Grant. Um, Qatar has significant issues, at least, or issues is the wrong word, but Qatar has things that are very, very different than the West. Um, you could be criminalized for same-sex relations. Um, their record of uh, the rights of migrant workers who built these projects for the World Cup is a disgrace. And so how do you think – my guess, having covered this, is I don't think Fox is going to touch it. I think Fox is going gonna, is gonna to say we're sports, we don't talk about this stuff, and they'll deal with the criticism. Um, NBC approached it differently. Do you have a sense as to how this plays out? You've actually been in the country as well. Yeah, I do. So I should say a few things. First off, I used to work for Fox Sports for seven years. I was part of the men's World Cup coverage and women's World Cup coverage. I chose – to not continue with Fox, not the other way around. Um, but I'm very well familiar with how Fox approaches covering World Cups, and I don't expect that to change. Um, and so, yes, I was slightly positively surprised that NBC, the rights holder during the Olympics, sent a message from the start of their coverage by saying, Uyghur and genocide multiple times, yeah. by the way, You're in right. the opening ceremony. And so this idea that the rights holder has to not say anything critical about the host country, it's just, I, I totally disagree with that. And yet, um, I think that appears to be the approach of Fox Sports toward Qatar and toward the World Cup there. And I would take it a step further and say it's very clear that Fox has a mega lucrative uh, deal with the Qatari government in the form of Qatar Airways as a, as a major sponsor of their coverage. Um, I can tell you that having worked for Fox during the Russia World Cup, you were never going to hear a discouraging word about Russia. And you're going to see pieces that started, say what you will about Joseph Stalin, about his dacha. And Remember that. Um, and so there's going to be similar travel type pieces uh, about Qatar from Fox that basically are saying you should be a tourist in Qatar. You should go, go to Qatar and you're not going to hear anything about migrant workers. All I can say is these are all choices in how we cover the World Cup. And so when I went to Qatar myself last month... I didn't publicize it on social media at all. I didn't mention it until I was out of the country because I didn't want to be detained. I was just doing basic shoe leather journalism. Literally, all I did was walk around Doha talking to migrant workers, wow. hotel workers, um, construction workers. And I had seen that two Norwegian journalists from that country's rights holder, by the way, the TV side, had been detained a couple of months earlier. 
and had been released eventually, but they were just doing journalism. So I was, you know, slightly freaked out, took some risk and got what I was looking for and had some really interesting conversations with migrant workers. I'm still getting WhatsApp messages from them. And uh, I'm going to be writing about that very soon for for GrantWall.com. And so I, I felt like it was incumbent on me if I'm going to cover the tournament, all the soccer in November and December to go before that and find out for myself with some independent reporting, what's it really like there for migrant workers on the ground? Because they make up more than far, you know, the vast majority of the people on the ground in Qatar. What I'll, I'll ask you, I mean, we'll read about it in your piece as well, but what is it like for migrant workers there? It's a mixed bag is, is basically what I found. It, you know, the Qatar government in 2019 made a big deal that they're still making a very large deal about that they changed the kafala system they changed a lot of their laws about dealing with migrant workers and what i found being on the ground talking to two dozen migrant workers from countries you know all over the place east africa west africa indian subcontinent philippines you know just talking to these folks and in giving them anonymity that um a lot of these new laws from the Qatari government on the ground are not being enforced. And so there's still really big issues with that. And that trend developed very quickly from the interviews I did. Now, there are some other things that, like the new minimum wage, which is still extremely low, about $1.25 an hour, um, that's being enforced. Keep in mind, Qatar is the, one of the richest countries in the world. And so $1.25 an hour may be more than what these workers are getting in the countries they came from, but it's still not much at all. The, um, you know, NBC used to and still would make the argument that um, when significant news breaks out during a sports event that they have the rights to, like the Olympics, they, they, the news department should cover it. They should cede to the news department. And my guess is, if it's like previous um, times with Fox, Fox is going to say that, hey, we're not we're not in the news business here. If anything breaks out that we have to discuss, uh, Fox News will handle it. How do you feel about that? When a when a um, like I think in many ways, like you can it's at least uh, defendable. Like I might not like it, but I get the defense on it. How do you feel about it? Because I think this is where Fox Sports is going to go with this stuff. I mean, I think back to what happened, you know, in the 72 Olympics and, and how well Jim McKay handled all of that in real time. And it's, that's historic. And so I do think TV channels should be equipped and prepared to do something like that. You know, none of us want anything awful to happen. Um, like what happened in 72. And yet I think you need to be equipped and ready to do that. And, so Jim McKay was a sports guy who was also capable of doing that and just a, an incredible sports journalist. So there's no reason that anybody at Fox Sports or NBC Sports should not be capable of handling something like that. I do remember there was an interview with you uh, by David Neal, the guy who runs Fox's it's correct. Fox is soccer, uh, like big event coverage. Yeah. Right. We're all This coverage. is several years ago. And, and he said something to you because you asked him about it. And he said, we're not, 
we don't have anyone trying to be Edward R. Murrow here. And as someone who worked for Fox at that time, I was, I, I was insulted by that. You know, I was a journalist working for Fox at that World Cup. And I'm not saying I'm Edward R. Murrow, but like when the boss says, we're not going to really do high level journalism, that is not a message you necessarily want to hear if you're working for them. Again, I mean, again, like, I mean, obviously, I, I think um, I understand how you felt about that. I, I guess, <sighs> I guess as the, the more I continue to sort of cover this, but sort of even more as a viewer, my expectations of them are zero. Like if they end up doing something like journalistically important on the Qataris and this stuff, like I'll be, I'll be happy. Like I'll be surprised, but I have no, I literally have no, um, how do I say this? I, I, I have no thought that they're going to do any of this. Now, again, I'm with you, Grant. I do think in many ways there has to be a responsibility if you're an American broadcaster that size to be honest with your viewers about what's going on. I'm just being honest here. Like, I just, I don't think they're set up to do it. I think they have no interest in doing it. And I think they'll, um, I think they have made a decision that it's financially smarter for them not to do it. So then it's incumbent upon, obviously, the places that still want to do this, like, the Guardian or GrantWall.com or the New York Times or the Washington Post, wherever, um, to do it. But I just I think you're just fooling yourself if if you think you're going to get that on Fox. And I also acknowledge there's many viewers who don't want it anywhere near their soccer coverage. They just want to they they want to watch the games. Yeah, I, I'm not naive about any of this, but I mean I I do remember like the way ESPN covered the South Africa World Cup in 2010 yeah, and the Brazil the World Cup in, in 2014. Agree? gold standard and the quality was there and they did a ton of journalism that was fascinating yeah, but, but but that's a journalistic it, that's a i mean listen you can complain about certain things about espn but let's take espn at that moment i mean that was a journalistic institution with a ton of people you had people like bob lee at the front of that i Correct. mean you know what i'm saying like you you know they made the investment on treating it like a journalistic enterprise in addition to um in addition to sort of providing what a broadcaster does where i think they were kind of brilliant in how they did that grant was that they um they were able to navigate the world of doing journalism but at the same time also like presenting soccer for the soccer and i i respected them for that because they did both which is not easy to do sometimes no i totally agree with that but i mean like if you look at how bob lee approached what he did just Absolutely incredible stuff from him and everyone yeah. else who was Great. involved with that. Jeremy Schapp, people like that. And so if I'm a consumer watching the World Cup, that's I want to see the whole package, you know, the the soccer stuff, the the history. Um, and, and granted, ESPN had a lot to work with in South Africa and Brazil, and Fox has had Russia and Qatar. Very yeah, different countries. Politically. And they didn't have any control over FIFA picking those authoritarian countries. And so, yeah. but like, it's still a choice what's being made. I, I just would be curious to know how much money the Qatari government is paying Fox. Maybe you can figure that out. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's insignificant. And I guess for me, and here's where I sort of ended on, is as a viewer, I might not like it, but I'll accept you not going into the areas that are in, that to me need to be going to like as you talked about the rights of migrant workers um that country's uh 
to me, incredibly backwards take on on same-sex relationships. Where it gets really hard for me to swallow, Grant, is when they infomercial it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's one thing to not cover it. It's another thing to sort of present Qatar as uh, Bora Bora. You know what I mean? That's where it's that's where it gets hard to swallow, and we'll see what Fox does. You are correct, though. Like, and I, I think they acknowledge it was wrong, but like that that piece that they did on Stalin's doctrine, like, was <laughs> yeah. I mean, just the language. It's amazing that somebody didn't sort of recheck the language of that sort of intro to that piece. So that that's where, to me, on Fox, like, if you're David Neal or Eric Shanks or whoever, sort of, you know, running this show. Um, you know, it's one thing to not report on certain stuff. It'd be another thing to just like be a PR agent for the Qatari. No. And that's what it kind of looks like right now from Fox, from what we saw on the draw the other day. And so sports washing, I guess we haven't said that in this discussion. That's the, that's one of the terms of the year. When you look at what China was trying to do by hosting the winter Olympics, what Qatar is trying to do hosting the world cup and, you know, the Saudis recently bought Newcastle United. Um, it's There's a reason these authoritarian countries do this and a reason that they want to host the biggest events in the world. Look at Russia hosting the World Cup in 2018. And Vladimir Putin was all over that World Cup with the FIFA president. And at the end of the tournament, the FIFA president said, oh, we now all look at Russia in a completely different way, including the government. And I was like, at the time. No, we don't. We know who Putin is. And, and obviously, we know who he is now. But we did then, too. And so I, I don't like it when, you know, people are complicit with this stuff and in the aims of, of these governments. So um, I guess what I would say is, is that if you want to read independent journalism about Qatar and migrant workers in connection to the World Cup, subscribe to grantwall.com because I need people to support that so I can continue doing those types of journalistic endeavors. Yeah, well said. And obviously, Grant will also be covering all the uh, all the games. He'll have previews, as he I know as he did back in the day working with me, on every single one of the World Cup teams. And then when all is said and done, and it's Canada and France in the final, Grant, it should be incredibly exciting. I can't wait for the tournament. I mean, I, I, I want to be clear that I am psyched for this World Cup and that the U.S. is in it and that Canada is in it and uh, it's going to be a fun year. Yeah, as am I. I mean, it's again, it's uh, there's as, as everything with FIFA and the IOC, two of the worst organizations on the planet, there's always a lot of shit. What always saves this stuff, Grant, is always is the play. What saves the Olympics are the athletes. What saves FIFA is the World Cup and and its athletes. And I expect the soccer to be to be great. And uh, and I'm pumped too. I was watching uh, the other uh, yesterday actually. I was watching PSG. They rolled over somebody four to one um, in the uh, Laurent. Maybe uh, I get I get one of the French league channels up here in Toronto. And it was just amazing, like to watch Mbappe and Messi. And uh, and Neymar, and it just makes you so psyched for like when those guys are playing for their individual countries, and 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 they they compete in this world competition. So I'm very excited. Uh, all right, Grant Wall, it, you uh, I mentioned it, uh, and he's mentioned it. We'll mention it again. GrantWall.com. You can subscribe to his um, his writing there. Unlike many other Substack writers, Grant Wall is actually traveling and doing firsthand reporting on his sport. Um, and so it's well worth the money. 
um, to invest in the quality journalism that he's doing. And for you people who love opinions, he'll trust me. He'll I, he will he has promised on this podcast he's going to claim that the somebody's the man is preventing him from going on media tours and 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 thus blow the country up. He also works for CBS Sports and Meadowlark Media. Grant, uh, always great to catch up with you, man. I know you miss our days when I used to host a soccer podcast at Sports Illustrated and made numerous mistakes on names. So you've come a long way since then. I miss sitting next to you, having desks next to each other for a number of years, but uh, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Richard. Uh, yeah, and I will practice my German pronunciation, Grant, because that was, <laughs> I really was, Schweinsteiger is not very good for me. All right, Grant Wall, everyone. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Jim Miller and Grant Wall for their time and their insights. Uh, if you like these kind of conversations, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch uh, page on uh, Apple, Google, Stitcher, etc. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. Previous one before this, Paul Heyman on being part of WrestleMania 38, covering war with um, Washington Post reporter Isabella Krishudian, who is in Odessa right now. Um, did 50 minutes with her from Odessa and what it's like to go from covering uh, sports to covering war, which is what... Uh, Isabel is doing now. Taylor Rooks of Bleacher Report and CNBC reporter Alex Sherman before that. ESPN's Rebecca Lobo and Holly Rowe before that. TJ Quinn of ESPN before that. Bomani Jones and Jeff Perlman head down the list uh, on the archives. There should be something for you. I want to thank everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. Thank you, Patrick Antonetti, as always, for your hard work. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.